Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we'll discuss a different safeguarding topic with a range of expert speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode one of the Safeguarding Podcast. Uh, I am very excited to be your host today. My name is Vicky Chafe, and I am Head of Community Relations and Partnerships at the Safeguarding Company. And today I am joined by Sue Bailey. Sue, can you please introduce yourself? Yes. Um, hello, everybody. And um, I'm delighted to be here with Vicky. So my name is Sue Bailey and I am one of the strategic leads at the Arthur Terry Learning Partnership, which is a multi-academy trust based in Birmingham, Staffordshire, Warwickshire and Coventry. So we've now got 20 schools, probably ten and a half thousand students one and a half thousand members of staff and across our schools now probably a hundred DSLs. So um, in terms of safeguarding, it's my day-to-day bread and butter, um, along with another two other members of my strategic team. Wonderful. So we are going to ask Sue some questions around her role and her trust. And the first one is, would you be able to tell us a bit more about your role at Arthur Terry? Okay, well, I've told you a little bit about our trust. So I I think understanding the trust will help you understand what I do. So um, we've got a very strong vision for our trust. We call it our one trust. So we all work together, um, a common platform, a common way of working. But our, our, our leading statement is that we always put children first. So children are at the heart of everything that we do. So, so because of that, really, over the last five years, we've seen a big investment in our safeguarding team. So we've got a safeguarding team now of three strategic strategic leads, which is a really hard word to say. And recently, we've appointed a vulnerable children's lead. So the four of us work very closely together to manage safeguarding across those four schools. So um, we work hard to work as one trust. So we've got an equity of offering every one of our schools to have common practices in place. And and we work with with staff at all levels. So I work with, we train our DSLs. So we do our own in-house DSL training. Um, We do our training for all of our staff, our annual training, our prevent training. Um, Recently, we've looked at um, supporting and training our new safeguarding advocates Um, We work very closely with our trust board and our trustees. We do their training. We produce um, reports for them based on the data that we take from my concern. Um, We do audits and reviews in all of our schools in such a way that involves a leader DSL from another school. So it's very much a learning experience. Um, And then we offer advice and guidance wherever is necessary. So that's a team really of, of three strategic leads and a vulnerable children's lead that work across our trust. Safeguarding across our trust now is divided into um, geographical hubs based on context. So each of our strategic leads now will manage one of those hubs. And in that hub, we've also got a lead DSL who works strategically and operationally to support safeguarding. So it's quite um, a big operation. Um, But our safeguarding culture is really strong. We talk about being a safeguarding first partnership. 
and always putting the child at the forefront of our decisions. So rather than the budget or the staff member, we always think of it from the children first. That's fantastic. And it talking about your safeguarding culture, like we know how important it is to have a really robust safeguarding culture within your organisations or your individual schools. And that must be a real challenge for you when you've got such a spread of skills, both like geographically and just the sheer enormity of your, your staff. How do you manage to make sure that that safeguarding culture is consistent across all of your schools? Okay, so... We always say you can feel the culture in our schools and and we hope that you can. And we've just had four recent offset inspections in the last, oh, certainly since just after Christmas, and offset have have agreed with that, that you can physically almost feel that culture. Um, We do have a common set of policies and practices, but we talk a lot about going into school you know, and the things that happen automatically, the culture that says this is a school that puts safeguarding first. So you're checked for your ID, you have to wear the right lanyard. There are posters all around our schools talking about what to do if you've got a concern for a child, what to do if you've got a concern about a member of staff. And they're in all of the usual places in reception, but also on the back of toilet um, doors and by the hand dryer and by the coffee machine or the water machine. So we've constantly got that reminder that we put safeguarding first. We're really strong on, on staff training. Um, you know, we monitor that very carefully and we make sure that our training is specific to the context that we're working in. So I've talked about the variety in in, in geographic location. You know, we've got schools in um, quite tiny Warwickshire villages to schools are almost underneath um, Spaghetti Junction in the centre of Birmingham. So making sure that wherever you go, you feel that culture is really, really important. A lot of it, of course, is through modelling through modelling how we talk to children, how we talk to each other. And it's based on those really sound relationships in our schools between staff, um, senior leadership, everybody who works in our school fully understands that safeguarding is everybody's business and we all do it. And hopefully we equip all of our staff to do that. That's fantastic. And I know how, how much you believe in proactive safeguarding. Um, and that all feeds into the culture as well, doesn't it? You know, it isn't, mm-hmm. it isn't just about your staff. It's about the children as well and making sure that, that the learning that they receive is is part of that culture and making sure that, you know, they can safeguard themselves as well. Absolutely. So in, in that sense, our safeguarding curriculum is really important and we have a group that meets to look at that in each of Um, our our geographical hubs because we know that um, in some of our schools neglect and the impact of poverty and deprivation is really high on their agenda. We've got some schools that at the moment are struggling with really serious violent crime linked to county lines whereas other of our other other schools we've got domestic abuse domestic violence being top of their agenda and running across all of our schools at the moment, we've got mental health, mental health issues, many of those linked to 
the safeguarding topics I've just described. So making sure that staff in those schools are really equipped to look at and know what to look for is part of building that culture. So, so to do that, people have often said to me, well, how do you differentiate? How do you decide what happens where? We analyse our data really carefully. So we look at what are what are our categories of concern that we've recorded, but we also look at and work with our local police and other partnerships, other agencies to make sure we're getting it right. It's so important that working with other agencies is just massive, isn't it? Because we're only one piece of that child's life. And, and that means that we do need to be talking, and not just to the, the multi-agencies like police and social care and things like that, but also to the community, the communities that they're in, some of the clubs, maybe some of the sports, maybe the local churches, having all of those really tight links is what's important. And it just embeds that culture out of your schools at that point, doesn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think we always say that if a potential abuser was to walk into one of our schools they would very quickly turn around and walk out because they know straight away that they will be checked and monitored and watched and that safeguarding is our first priority that's fantastic and and what 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 an accolation to, to have to say that it's just it's just wonderful so moving on now from from the safeguarding culture what role has leadership played? Like you, you talk about you and your strategic team. So how have you how have you used that leadership then to to embed everything that you've just been talking about? Okay, so I, I think it starts at the very top. Our, our CEO is um, firmly models and agrees with and supports and delivers that culture across our trust. So, you know, we look to him sometimes and he's there 100% behind us. He finds the money for our training, for our training venues to release staff. Um, You know, the the investment in additional safeguarding leads, you know, my team or the team I was in was me. We're now four. So, you know, we've quadrupled the people working strategically with safeguarding but we've also employed lead dsls in our hub so there's been a huge investment from the leadership from the very top to support safeguarding um you know we insist that there's always a representative from every school at our dsl development days our dsl networks and again that's supported by our ceo by our directors of education and by our strategic leads right all the way across the partnership so again, it, it spells out that safeguarding first, children first. And we feel we've got to get that right all of the time. And it's like you said, it has to come from the top and that includes governance and trustees yep. as well, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And you were saying before about how important it is to make sure that they're trained. You know, I think that most schools would would agree when they say that maybe their their governance training isn't isn't where they would like it to be. Uh-huh. Um, and and you said that that's obviously a priority because that it's leading from the front, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So we've just had a round of applications. We've we've altered our governance structure. So we've now got safeguarding advocates rather than safeguarding governors for all of our schools and members of our local community applied for those positions. 
So we've got some really talented and skilled and experienced people, a number of ex-police officers, people who work in school improvements, um, people who've been teachers and DSLs. So that, that, that body of people are really well equipped to challenge us as well as their lead DSLs in their school challenge and support but, but that, that they certainly do that and that makes for a much stronger system when, when you know when you are held to account and you have to explain your actions or explain why you're doing something it makes it um, yeah it can be a bit tricky on occasions you know when you're questioned in detail about your data analysis but actually it holds you to account and it makes sure you do what you should be doing. Absolutely. And it's something as as a safeguarding governor myself, it's something that I've always felt is really important that anybody who takes on that role does have an understanding of safeguarding Mm -hmm. in in some some respect so that the people that are leading on safeguarding are held to account Mm -hmm. and just, just making sure that that strategic direction is the right direction and that every action has been thoroughly thought out and reasoned behind it so I I fully agree with that and I think that when you're talking from such a big trust as well you really need to make sure that those those governance in each of those schools are still following the same values that that you you hold Mm -hmm. you hold Mm -hmm. to account to so making sure that the, the person that's in post isn't just somebody that was was picked out of a hat you know they've, they've absolutely it's it's showing that even in governance and and trustees that that position is actually really important and a priority and we want to make sure that we get the right person for that role and what's also been interesting I, I explained at the start that we've got three strategic leads and a lead for vulnerable children so we have our safeguarding advocates, but we also have our advocates for vulnerable children. So bringing that group together and also what's been interesting, um, last week, our vulnerable children's lead trained our DSLs into what does a vulnerable child look like? What should we be doing in school? What are the additional safeguarding risks? Um, how can we mitigate against this? Um, and so it, we're almost now, for me, joining up the dots so it's 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 a much tighter, um, more holistic view of of the children in our schools and and their safeguarding needs. That's incredible, absolutely incredible. So for you, what was the importance of of growing your strategic team? So you said up until this year, um, there was just you, um, and and now you've grown to to two two more essentially of, of mm-hmm. your role and then the vulnerable the vulnerable children's lead what was so important that that central strategic team grew so obviously there was a capacity issue because when I started out as a strategic lead there was there were seven or eight schools in our partnership and we're now up to 20 but it's enabled us to be far more flexible um, you know we can offer cover all week for all of our schools but we've also now got some real in-depth expertise in that team so one of the other strategic leads has worked in multi academy trusts before so she has a real understanding of how a mat works and how we can do those um, really in-depth safeguarding audits into particular aspects of safeguarding 
Um, one of our other strategic leads is a, um, she's was a current police officer working in child protection so working in exploitation working in serious violent crime so that's brought a huge new dimension to our work particularly in terms of um, recording and reporting and how important it is to write down the right things when we record on my concern and then our vulnerable children's lead is a social worker so she's got a social care background so again we often look now through either the lens of a police officer or a social worker on the case that we're discussing and so we've got our two education heads and other real experts and real areas of expertise and knowledge and skills looking at that particular case. So for me, it's been absolutely amazing to be able to look at it like that. And of course, between the four of us, we can bounce ideas off each other. We've all got our own networks, our own contacts, people that we can turn to, whether that's you know a voluntary agency or a local group or you know, somebody within social care or the police that can help us out. So it really has added not just capacity, but the ability to, to really support our children and do those, those really in-depth reviews into what's happening. And it's like you were saying before, is, is that it's made, made safeguarding a priority because that speaks volumes to all of us that are within your trust, that we're investing in safeguarding to make sure that there is capacity to ensure that you all get what you need to get and the support that you need to get because each one of your children is just as important to us as any other. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, you know, across our our trust, we've got lots of children who are still really quite hidden, you know, and, and we know that this sort of post-COVID recovery is going to take a lot longer and we've still got children who actually haven't as yet had the confidence or the courage to step forward and ask for help or families that haven't done that but having that much bigger team means that when they do that we've got the capacity to take them on and support them. Do you know it's it's so funny that you should be talking about about post-COVID. I was talking to some of our teachers yesterday actually and we were talking about our year five children um, and you don't realise that those year five children have missed out on so much due to COVID. They didn't take the phonic screenings. They didn't do the key stage one SATs. So now it's coming to the preparation for the year six SATs. They've had no experience of what assessments look like, statutory assessments. So their mental health is really, really struggling, which yeah. is which is obviously all linked. And, and people that aren't in education don't understand that we're still having these ongoing issues now. I had a very similar conversation uh, last week, perhaps a week before, about children in year two, because I think nationally there's a spike in children in year two and poor behaviour. So, you know, children in year two who are being suspended from school. Uh, and that's really scary when they're only, you know, seven eight yeah and again if I look at some of our older children they've really suffered mm, so you know it, I, I think it will be a while before we can say we've put that behind us and we've moved on absolutely and and some of the secondary teachers that I've been talking to they would very much say that the year eights are yeah, absolutely. Have a 
real struggle when it comes to behaviour. And, and that's because of everything that they've missed as well, isn't it? You know, yeah. and they're incredibly immature in the way that they present themselves. And of course, of late, we've had so much, so much disruption. What with yeah. you know strikes, um, COVID. Um, snow days general illnesses as well everybody's been mm. so poorly mm. over christmas because we had all the, the strep didn't we that was mm. schools. Mm. we've had a chicken pox don't know whether you had it there but certainly up here we had a chicken pox was just everywhere um so lots of children have, have had lots of illnesses as well so it, it's just on and on isn't it uh-huh. so our attendance is something that we need to work on yeah. You know, it, it's, it, it's nationally, but, you know, across our partnership, we've got a real focus now on trying to raise attendance, particularly for those really vulnerable children. Absolutely. Um, and our final question, I can't oh, believe gosh. this is, yeah, this has gone, gone through. What is your onboarding process that you follow? So when a, a new school joins okay. your trust? How, how do you onboard them for your safeguarding culture point of view? Okay, so we're, we're very fortunate. We've got a brand new school that's being built at the moment, joining us in September in Lichfield. Wow. What's really good there is that one of our existing deputy heads has got the headship there. So that head is already embedded in our culture and our practices. So what we would probably do even before they joined us would be to go and do a safeguarding audit talk about what we can do to help them, how we can support. So we'll do all the centralised policies, centralised training. We'll come in and talk to staff. We'll look at how their culture, what it feels like in their schools. And then we'll do monitoring visits. And then one of the team will be attached to them to support them. Um, We have a a common set of systems that we use. So all of our schools are my concern schools, which helps because then you can analyse your data. We use Smoothwall, which links to my concern, and we all use Bromcom. So it all starts to feel very similar. Then we'll invite them to our um, centralised standardised training. So our DSL development days, our DSL network days. And we'll also do specific events or training for schools as and when required. So it's very much, you know, we're here, we're here to help. Um, let's get it right from the start. And how supportive that must feel to that a school that's that's joining a trust, especially if they've never been in a trust before. Yeah, I hope and so. I hope so. Yeah. And we'll, we'll also give them, you know, a, a phone number that they can ring almost at any time if they've got an issue which a lot of people said is, or, or just a, another group of DSLs or another group of head teachers that they can pick the phone up to and say, oh, what do you think about this? You know, have I got this right? Or what's your take on this situation? And from a supervision point of view, that's fantastic because something that I've always championed is that just because a, a concern or a situation that's arisen in your school even though it might feel unique to you, I guarantee that there will be a school somewhere that has has already dealt with that mm-hmm. and have been through the other side and can give you so much more advice and support. Mm-hmm. So having having those people to call upon, it's just, for your own well being, it's just incredible. And how much better are those um, early help models going to be? Yeah, mm-hmm. to other schools that have already done something around that. And particularly having that um, expert voice from the police 
and the expert voice from social care, it, it really does help to know that you've got somebody um, that you can just share your thoughts with and offload if necessary, have a quick rant and rage at, you know. Mm. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Well, thank you for asking me along. You're very welcome. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And I shall see you on the next one. See you all soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Safeguarding Podcast. For resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions, please visit thesafeguardingcompany.com. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and feel free to rate us using whichever podcast provider you use.